Mustafa and Ken here. Welcome back to the Alert Medic One podcast. Alert Medic One response. I do want to talk about community paramedic stuff. I, mean, I was uh, actually still technically am involved in our program at work. I haven't mm-hmm. worked it in a while. Um, it's an interesting concept. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I would done, love to see the results. I think done right, it could be a very good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I, I think the idea is super cool. I just don't yeah. know what the results are. Like, I don't either. Because at this point, they've been going for a, a minute. A couple right? of years. Yeah. yeah. So I'd love to see like how the outcomes are. Which I don't even know what the outcomes would be. I don't like know. less repeat patients. I don't. I don't know how you really measure. So the the question is first, what are you trying to do? You know, yeah. like I mean, you can't measure something if you don't know what the outcome or or what the purpose of it is. Sure. Um, and I know for the program in the department where I work. One of the things I said is, you know, the measure is not to decrease 911 calls or decrease frequent flyers. The measure is to decrease hospital readmissions, um, which isn't necessarily directly correlated to 911 sure. utilization. Um, but that's just not something I have any access to the data for, so I really can't speak to it. Do patients uh, do... I imagine a frequent flyer doesn't always get admitted. Oh, certainly not. Yeah. Right? They probably just... A lot of times it's a, an ER visit and sent home in probably 90% of cases, you know, and I just pulled that number out of my ass. But, yeah. Um, yeah. But there is another... I mean, there's another part to our program at work where we have a nurse practitioner or a physician ride around in a, a fly car and they go to low acuity calls and try to mitigate at the scene. Um, Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, I don't know how successful that's been either, to be honest with you. And I'm I'm not trying to insinuate that it hasn't been successful. It Mm -hmm. may have been. Um, But in the part of my jurisdiction where I work, I'm kind of far away from where that resource is located. Mm -hmm. And though though they have free reign over the entire jurisdiction, they don't usually end up in the part of the jurisdiction I'm in, you know yeah, what I yeah, mean? Yeah. You know, yeah. like they usually stay downtown or say so they come out of downtown. Um, but I mean, it's a big city. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. And it's, it's one car. So, you oh, know, for the whole city, for the whole city. That's an interesting concept though. Yeah. So I think it's a very good concept. Do they ever have like advanced practice protocols for like, could the physician, like if it was like a critical call, could the physician do extra good stuff? Um, not that I'm aware of. Um, because that's generally be an interesting way to back into that. Generally, it's a nurse practitioner. Um, it, it used they. I don't know if they still have physicians riding. Um, mm-hmm. they used to. Um, now our our medical director at work has a a lot of extra equipment in his mm-hmm. car, and he usually spends at least one day a week riding around, jumping mm-hmm. calls and getting into whatever. You know, I've been really into. wondering if the juice is worth the squeeze for medical school. You know, um, I don't know. You know, one thing uh, I talked to uh, a doctor because I, I briefly flirted with the idea myself yeah. going back to, to school and doing it. And I talked to a doctor about it 
And his advice was, if there's anything else you want to do with your life, do that instead. Oh, I've, that's what I've been told. Yeah. That's um, what I've been told as well. It's kind of funny. Um, that's something Katie and I have talked about a lot. Um, mm-hmm. Because I, I don't know if you know this or not, but I almost failed out of high school. Oh, like, no, I did not know that. Um, and then when I got medicated for my ADHD, I got a 4.0 in college. I graduated summa cum laude. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't know if a lot of people know that about me, but I, I like, dropped out of UMBC because yeah. I had a 1.8 GPA. I, like, had no idea what I wanted to do, and then I got treated for my ADD. And yeah. I, I mean, I mean, I think I'm doing okay now. And and Katie always says, like, you know, had maybe had that been treated when I was younger, like, I probably could have gone to medical school and probably done well. But yeah, no, now I'm a paramedic I'm with, with a bachelor's degree, so... <laughs> which paramedics don't need those anyway right? no so. no well, that's a whole topic i want to talk about too one day um so it's, it's, it's funny you bring that up because like dude I, I i always say that the fire department saved my life yeah um, because uh so yeah i was at umbc i was um uh i was uh a junior um i was a biology major I was working part-time as a pharmacy technician at CVS mm-hmm. um, because my brother um, – so wh- the full story is I used to work at a grocery store near home. I used to come one day a week, and it was useless, mm-hmm. and I wanted a job and make some money. So my brother was a pharmacy student. He was uh, – one of his rotations was uh, he was with, like, a district manager at CVS, and he got me a job at a pharmacy – at a retail pharmacy and like that got me like my regular like they give you the state license and then they'll pay for your national license and then um i was pretty much like it was the winter of 2013 i was like what am i doing with my life i have a 1.8 gpa like i was getting the um sorry about that the i was getting like the uh was a sat- satisfactory academic progress alerts mm-hmm. because i had a crap gpa but like I just I don't, I can I can't describe it. I just didn't it just didn't resonate with me like the, like I was interested in the stuff I was of course interested in the stuff I mean I think this podcast demonstrates my interest in like biology and physiology but I just couldn't connect the dots mm-hmm. I it was it was like there was a part of me that couldn't get myself to the point where I could actually do the work even though I cared so much about it so then I um uh I I mean I pre- I didn't drop out I went to one class every other semester so that I, it was the minimum thing I worked at pharmacy and then I joined the, you know joined the volunteer fire department I didn't get to a psychiatrist until because number 1 it was really hard to get to number 2 I didn't at that point point I didn't realize I needed it um until I was you know fast forward fast forward a couple years I became a paramedic graduated from paramedic school was working uh on the road and I was like, I need something. Cause now I am definitely motivated to go to school and I still can't make it happen. Yeah. And it took me months to find a psychiatrist. And then finally I found a psychiatrist and my first appointment, she was like, yeah, you have a really bad case of ADD. Yeah. Like, cause I took some test for mm-hmm. her and then we talked for half an hour and she was like, yeah, you really like, this is not a, you know, and I told her my hesitancy with treatment mm-hmm. and she's like, listen, if your patient had a broken leg, you're going to tell them to go to the hospital and get the leg fixed. Right. Right. And she's like, you just happen to be sick, but the thing that's wrong with you is in your head, so fix it. Right. You know, she's like, you don't have to think about it any other way. And that's what got me to where I am. So it's actually interesting. I didn't know that about you, but it's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because, like, I mean, 
a lot of people don't believe a lot of things about mental health are real, but ADD and ADHD in particular, people don't think it's real. And they think that medication and stuff is like, I don't know, poison or scam or, you know, easy uh, way out. Easy way out. That's what I get a lot. But, you know, it's, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm not trying to get on like a ADHD soapbox here, but um, it's real. Yeah. You know, know, like I can... Yeah. No, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I mean, I can tell you from my experience, it's made a huge difference in my life being on medicine for it. And I have tried basically every medicine out there before I found one that worked. But once mm-hmm. I found one that worked, like I said, you know, it it's made such a huge difference. And if I'm if I miss it because um, like I take, a, I guess, a high dose. So the pharmacy doesn't always have it in mm-hmm. stock. Um if they don't have it for a few days and I didn't call to refill it soon enough, I notice a big difference. Oh, absolutely. Huge and actually, no, no, actually me and my fiance notices too. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Cause I just become, and it's so weird. Cause then it becomes heightened. Like, uh, we, we figured out it was something called executive dysfunction where like, um, which that's another book I, I want to get into. It's called peak mind. Okay. It's like a neuroscientist wrote it about like, um, mindfulness and stuff like that. Well, that's another day. Um, but like, no matter how, it's so weird. Uh, and people that I feel like people that don't experience it don't understand it. You can be super motivated to do something, but then not be able to execute it. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yep, hundred um, percent. So yeah, I'm the same way. And I was. It's funny you say that. The well, we both said it. The it's like a, a excuse or an easy way out or whatever. Um, I didn't want to get medicated because I was surrounded by people that were excelling because they were popping Adderall illegally. Uh, and I was like, I know that I suck. And I'm not trying to like paint myself as like a martyr. Like I, I was also a shitty student. Right. And I, you know, not motivated, but I didn't want to be one of them mm-hmm. because like they would be killing it on these exams. But I knew for a fact that many of them were just popping Adderall. Like it was nothing. And I'm not talking like minor doses. They were, t- they were addicted mm-hmm. to Adderall. And then they would go party their asses off on the weekend, mm-hmm. like, and also be popping Adderall when they're not studying. Right. And it was just a bet. And I hate to say it, but some of them are doctors now, yeah. uh, you know, but uh, whatever. Yeah. I might have to edit that part out, but mm. I want to, I want to talk about your quote up there someday too. Oh yeah. You can read it if you want. <laughs> it says, show me a satisfied man and I'll show you a failure. So the story behind that is we took a, f- a personality test both did okay and i forget what personality test it was but at the at the end of it that was the quote that popped up for my personality type okay and fast forward she that was her surprise birthday present for me i think birthday or some holiday or something okay and like i i I always create like sometimes i'm like man really should i really have that up there but i chose to keep it because it does resonate with me because uh satisfaction to me, you know, you can be satisfied in one area and not in the other. The the person I think about is my dad. Mm -hmm. So like, he's the one person that I've seen that is not a, like he was very satisfied and he definitely wasn't a failure. Right. So like, I think the goal is to reach a point of satisfaction where you aren't like you haven't quit. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's Um, fair. But for me, there's this term that I was taught by the president of the volunteer fire department that I joined and I still am a member of. And mind you, this guy's actively like engaged with me and getting me to back to writing. Mm-hmm. Um, years later, uh, he uh, he taught me a term called constructive dissatisfaction. So like, I like it. So the idea that always be dissatisfied with how you're doing things, even if you're super successful, mm-hmm. 
because you don't want to become complacent and stagnant. So, but you have to make sure it's constructive because if it's not constructive, then it's self-destructive and, uh, or construct destructive. Right. I gotcha. Um, and also like for, as you know, I mean, we've been very candid about both of our mental health. Like that can be really detrimental to people that have other mental health issues. So, sure. But yeah, that, but that's the origin of that quote. Yeah. That's interesting. Okay. I I thought you might say something like that. Um, you know, I I figured you didn't mean it literally. No, Um, no, no, uh, no, no. You know, I, I I think that's fair because, you know, I consider myself extremely satisfied with most of my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, although there are still things I want to do and improve on. Sure. You know, and I think that's what the key is, is that there's always room to grow. Mm-hmm. There's always room to do better, both professionally and personally. Yeah. Um, and I have a lot of goals that I haven't met yet. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't mean I'm dissatisfied, mm-hmm. but there are definitely things I want to accomplish. When I think of satisfied, I think of Job of the Hut. <laughs> seriously like i like it massive guy has a little you know whatever fiefdom like has his rancor can make anybody shows up he can make you know get and feed the rancor right like but he was lazy right he, he was dumb yeah and he wasn't dumb he was very smart he just was fallible and he was satisfied and yep. he miscalculated a very very touchy political thing yep. and underestimated a foe and then got choked out Yep, he sure did. Yeah. So, I don't know. That's yeah. a good transition to something. I don't know. Okay. Uh, how's your, your two weeks? You said your past two weeks have been... Oh, they've been crazy, Moose. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I can't even remember everything that's happened over the past two weeks. It's just like a blur. Yeah. Um, just because just like the level of insanity um, that I've dealt with, and I don't know what it was or what triggered it. If it's because it's warmed up. If it's because there That's was a, a full moon, yeah. If it just is the way the world fell, yeah. Um, but I had a lot of I had a lot of weird stuff. I had a lot of um, and obviously we won't, we won't get into like you know I had a lot of personnel issues. Obviously we won't get into that, but um, they were weird issues. They weren't like normal things. I had issues with the police that I won't get into yeah. on the podcast. Yeah. Um, but like for example. I had three suicides. Mm-hmm. Don't run suicides a lot. Yeah. Um, really? No, not really. Um, don't like running suicides. Hate, yeah, um, yeah. At all. Um, not to the, I mean, I guess on some level, you know, it, it bothers me. Um, sure. But not like, you know, I don't stay up at night thinking about it or anything like that. But it's not, it's not a call type that I enjoy. But I had uh, two hangings and a guy jump out a third story window. Just weird mm. stuff um, mm. that we don't deal with, a, you know, a whole lot, you know, stuff like that. Um, I mean, I had like my normal, normal stuff too, but uh, so if you don't mind, and yeah, you, we don't have to dwell on it if you don't want we to. We can dwell, we can dwell on whatever you the want. The suicides, okay. yeah. Um, I I can't, I don't have any specific statistics, but the rate of suicide has skyrocketed with COVID, right? I have heard that. I don't yeah. have, like you said. I don't have specific statistics either. I don't know. Um, I'm trying to think during COVID if I actually personally had any, and I'm struggling to remember having one, which doesn't mean it didn't happen. Um, I mean that's a long two years, and a lot of stuff happened. Um, and, and the reason I'm so shocked that you said you don't run too many suicides is because I ran a, in a short amount of time when I first got cleared as an ALS provider, 
that was before I graduated. Well, it was right as I was graduating paramedic school. But remember, like at when I, when I went through, you could still test out at mm-hmm. uh, the cardiac rescue technician level, which mm-hmm. is like an EMTI for Maryland. I had a string of suicides, which obviously I won't get into the details. We can talk about that offline. But uh, that that was a very formative for me because I, mm-hmm. I remember that bothering me a lot. Yeah. And I'm not talking one or two. I'm yeah. talking I had a lot within like a six-month period, and I don't know why. Yeah. And I remember the details of some of them very vividly to this day. So yeah. I, 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 that's just surprising to hear that in a busy urban system, you don't run that a lot. Yeah, it's not. It's definitely not an everyday call. Um but you know it you know you bring up the string of calls it seems like different people have different strings of weird calls yeah i feel like um i've, I've talked about with this with some of the other officers at work um i, I feel like in the past i've been an, i've been a paramedic for 15 years i've been in ems for 17 i've been 12 going on 13 in the jurisdiction i work in mm-hmm. In the last, in that, I never had any of these before I got hired where I work. Mm -hmm. But in the last 13 years, I feel like I've had a disproportionate amount of pediatric cardiac arrests, Mm. like a lot. Um, I've had two, um, and one of them was in the last two weeks. Um, I had two since my youngest son was born. Mm -hmm. Like, that just seems like a lot. He's seven months old. Yeah. You know? Um, Wow. Yeah. yeah. And both of them, the weird thing, both of them, the first one I had in the past seven months, my son was three months old. This kid was three months old. Mm. The second one I had, um, well, obviously he's seven months old now, was seven months old. You know, it's oh. just weird, yeah. you know? Um, so it how, was. How uh, do you do, like, I mean, you don't have to answer this, but like, how do you process that? Like, I, I don't, listen, I don't have kids, but I, I tell you what, man, my I love my nephew. Like he's about to be four, and then I have a niece that's about to be one. And I'll tell you what, man, I like, I dread. Like I'm obviously, I, I haven't been clear about. It. I'm getting back into writing. I dread that. Yeah. Like how? Like what's like the functional process? Like how do you do that? It's difficult. It's a learned experience. Yeah. Um, like I said, I feel like I've had a lot of them, unfortunately. Um, part of it is. Is, is, this is going to sound terrible, but part of it's like with adults, it's uh, desensitization and mm-hmm. repeated exposure, um, which isn't to say they don't bother me, yeah. um, you know, but it, it, it definitely comes to a point where you're in that moment and you're like, okay, this is just another call. We're going to do what we got to do. You know, yeah. like don't get the jazz hands, don't get all yeah. worked up. Um, yeah. And then like the, the honest answer, Moose, is a big part of how I've learned to deal with it is just through therapy. Okay. Like I see a therapist regularly. Can you um, tell me more about that? Yeah, I mean, um, like did, uh, when when I say that, do, I mean, like, did they give you like tangible tools? Did they like? Does it just help? Does it help to talk through it? It helps to talk through it. You you um, kind of process it as you go. I guess like. Um, I try very hard to be in the moment with it and be like, okay, I'm, I'm physically present here. I'm not going to, um, you know, disassociate from the situation. I'm in a, I'm, I'm here. I'm Ken, I'm in the ambulance. This baby's not breathing. What do we need to do? So mm-hmm. that's like step one. Yeah. Um, then you do the job mm-hmm. and then step two, and this is probably the most important thing for me mm-hmm. is after the call's over, um, be very aware of your emotions, validate them, name them, process them. Yeah. Um, 
And for me, that's something that has helped significantly. Um, it's, uh, again, doesn't mean I don't have issues afterward. Doesn't mean mm-hmm. I don't still struggle with that call, but that kind of gets me through it. Yeah. Um, it's still something, like I said, you know, I'll still go back and talk to my therapist about it. And actually it's, it's interesting. This last one I had, I've, I saw my therapist since then. I didn't even think to bring it up. Like I, mm. I had a bunch of other stuff going on, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. but you know, I, I processed it. Um, and I, I'm at peace with it. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. it sucked. It's terrible that it happened. It's not a good thing. Yeah. You know, the, the kid reminded me of my son, you know, it's terrible. Yeah. I, I check him a million times a night to make sure he's still breathing. Yeah. You know, yeah, like that yeah, hypervigilance yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, but that's what, what it, it is, what it is. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, it's, uh, I don't know. It's it's tough, but it's uh, I don't know. I don't know if I gave you a good answer to that. No, I think um, you did. I, I think uh, I got a couple really good pieces out of that. Um, what you kind of described is an OODA loop. Have you ever heard of that no, term? I'm not familiar with that. So I learned that term. I actually heard it from Cody Winifred, uh-huh. but it didn't really register until. And I, you, I'm sure you saw me. I was like trying to leave through that book, Extreme Ownership, because I thought I heard it in there. But then this program I'm in, I heard it in there too. So the OODA loop, um, O O D A, and then loop. Mm-hmm. Um, observe, orient, decide, act. Okay. So as a four-step approach to decision making that focuses on filtering available information, putting it in context, and quickly making the most appropriate decision while also understanding the cha- the changes that can be made as more data becomes available. Okay. Um. That seems mechanical and, like, I guess not what you were talking about. But, uh, the, but it's the, true. The observe and orient part, I think a critical part of that is being mindful of yourself. Yes. Right? Like, not just being, a you know, a mechanical thing because then you just push your own stuff down and you're right. human. That's not healthy, right? Well, and you risk getting tunnel vision when you when – you, um, if you hyperfixate on a situation mm-hmm. and, and if you don't orient yourself and ground yourself in the present events sure you, you risk getting tunnel vision on you know one part of the situation and not observe you know, like it's really important especially for me as a supervisor whether it's a pediatric arrest or a multi-victim shooting or just a, a regular medical call that i just pick up and i just want to see how you know my crews are doing with um to really just stand back mm-hmm and take in everything at the scene and say, what's really going on here? What's being done? What's not being done? What do we need to do? Do I need to redirect somebody? Do I need to step in and do something myself? Which I try to avoid doing um, because I don't think it's really, it's not really my role as a supervisor to intubate or start IVs or do IOs or push drugs or anything, but I absolutely will do it if I need to, obviously, you know, like I don't care, but Every call to me is a chance for a paramedic to learn and grow. Like I've certainly nobody has seen everything. Nobody's done everything. I haven't been doing this that long compared to a lot of people. But I have seen some stuff. I have done a fair amount of stuff. So if there's a paramedic there who is or who has maybe less experience with the situation, it's more important for me to let that paramedic get the tube, do the IO, do the mm-hmm. drug calculation. Like I can step in and do it if I need to, mm-hmm. 
but it's time for somebody else to learn. And I know we're getting a little off topic from from where we started, but it doesn't matter. I like I like the organic what, what, flow. What of topic these conversations. is it? Yeah, I, don't, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think the topic is your French press coffee because it's it's very delicious. Good. It's yeah. very good. So, uh, uh, so I'm I. There's a quote that I want to read out of this because that what you just said was perfect. Um, would you say that what you just said? So leaders taking a step back and having more of a strategic view of the situation, whether it's a micro call, whether it's a macro departmental thing, which we don't have to get into that for you. But uh, do you think that's common practice? I think where I work, for the most part, it is. Okay. Um, at least with the EMS officers. Um, I And I would say with the suppression. I mean, I can't speak to the fire ground activities, but we, um, my department, we run a lot of suppression pieces on medical calls. So the suppression officers are always involved in patient care as well. Um, and I, I would say, honestly, both fire and EMS, most of our officers are very good at not being micromanagers. There's always okay. one. There's always one. Okay. So why do you think that micromanagement occurs? I th- honestly, I, th- <laughs> I think that in a lot of cases, it's a personality issue um, insofar as somebody is either not confident in themselves or not confident in their crew to do the right thing, even if they're capable, um, which, again, I think in most cases they are. Sure. Um, I think for some people it's a control thing where, you know, I've got the bugles, so I'm in charge, you know, like, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna run this show. Um, but I don't think that that's it for most people. Now there are some cases, um, where maybe, uh, an officer is a paramedic and the crew are EMTs. And in that case, I think it's a level of care thing. Of course. And, and maybe, yeah. you know, I don't really have an issue with that. Um, but I think generally it's a it's a, a personality or a confidence thing. I don't think that it's malicious in most cases. I Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that for a lot of people it's, either, it's a control thing or a confidence thing. So for me, it was a confidence thing. Uh, and also, I, I mean, I guess it's intuitive. Ooh. Right. I have a point to make when you're done. I just thought of Go it. Go ahead. No, no, no. Finish your point. Well, Finish I'll, your point. I'll remember my point. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Um, I think part of it's a trust thing, too. And being okay. able to, do you trust your people to do it? You know, I took a leadership course at work, and you're going to like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, day one, the opening thing was uh, from an uh, organization called Leadership Under Fire. Have you ever heard of that? No. Okay. So, dude is a Navy SEAL commander. Okay, so I, I don't know. Are the, is it the same guys as like extreme ownership? Like I don't Jocko know. Jocko and them. Okay. Um, yeah. But uh, one of the things he said, and these guys came and talked to you via Skype. That's still cool. Though. It was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, one of the things he said, and this this kind of there's a, there's a cringe factor with it for me mm-hmm. um, because it's one of those like things that I think is meant to like. Uh, like just gain attention kind mm-hmm. of thing. But he's like, weaponized trust. Yeah. I'm like, what does weaponized trust mean? And it actually meant something that was very intuitive to me and it's something that I think I practice. But what he meant by that was that you should empower your people to make decisions and trust their ability to make those decisions. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, they're an extension of you. 
um, but obviously you're not going to micromanage them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's trust your people to make their own decisions, trust your subordinates, trust your lower level supervisors, you know, like let them do their job. Yeah. That, that's all, you're, that's you're, all so, it means. So from the book Extreme Ownership, you're talking about decentralized command. There you so, go. And I got a quote. So there's something new that I started doing re- very recently. Um, I used to be very apprehensive to writing in books. Okay. And I, I completely threw that out. I was like, these are my books. I own them. If I'm reading, and I read mostly nonfiction, mm-hmm. um, if I'm reading, what's the point of reading if I, I mean, I want to take away stuff, right? right. So this book, Extreme Ownership, uh, How Navy Seals, um, How U.S. Navy Seals Lead and Win, yes, I, I acknowledge the slightly cringe factor of that because I know that, <laughs> like, pe- there's a, at least a perceived group of people that go after these guys, right? I don't care. After reading this book, so much of this applies to EMS because we're we're put in high stress situations where it's uh, oftentimes, like you said, pediatric cardiac arrests are, are a good example of low occurrence, high risk, mm-hmm. right? So one I, of the I love that term, low frequency, high risk. Yeah, yeah, and yep. one of the quotes here that I underlined, um, and this is a little bit lengthy, but you'll it definitely uh, uh, connects. Pushing the decision making down to the subordinate frontline leaders within the task unit was critical to our success. This decentralized command structure allowed me, as the commander, to maintain focus on the bigger picture, coordinate friendly assets, and monitor enemy enemy activity. Were I I to get embroiled in the details of a tactical problem, there would be no one else to fill my role and manage the strategic mission. Yeah. So obviously, a lot there's who's the enemy in our case, right? The 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 pathophysiology that's killing our patient right Right. now. Um, Oftentimes, I mean. Where I got the bulk of my experience, I was oftentimes not only the only paramedic, and not not commonly, but uh, I remember very, very vividly some calls where I was the only EMS clinician on scene for a long time. Um, that that goes more into like the prioritize and execute part of this book, but um, it's it it's hard though as a new param as sorry as a new supervisor who used to be the guy doing the stuff, the tactics, mm-hmm. now to have to step back. And I'm sure you'd you'd be able to speak more to this than I can because I don't you know I don't have too much experience in this role. But like having to take the step back and look at the strategy of the whole thing, that's tough. I think in paramedic school we kind of train that into people at least a little bit because of the whole team leader aspect. But no one really puts it in a granular fashion like these guys do. Like obviously we're not like these like you know it, it it would be inappropriate for us to act like these like. I'm not saying they're douchey operators, but like, you know what I mean? You know, you, you know, the, the, the stereotype that I'm talking about, but this is huge because you, you have to allow your airway guy to do airway stuff, right? Right. You can't jump in and go for the tube if they miss one time, because then you're going to miss the two minute check, the, you know, the, the pulse check or whatever. Right. right? Um, so I'm really glad you said that. I, I, at some point I would love to go through this book. I think it deserves its own episode of okay. just going through every, cause I underlined everything. The next goal is for me to like write stuff down. And I, I think there's a lot of applicable things to this. I would love to do that. Yeah. yeah. That, that sounds great. You know, and I have, um, long thought that there needs to be, and, and you could probably argue this should be jurisdictional, um, and maybe doesn't need to be standardized, but there should be a level of education above paramedic, not in a clinical sense, but in a leadership and management sense there, because going, you know, you go to college for two years to become a paramedic, but that doesn't prepare you to really be 
a leader on calls or certainly not for a promotion, you know, um, even in the volunteer service, you know, you might be a paramedic for, you know, volunteer service. Perfect example. Um, I was 22 and, uh, there was no one else eligible. So they made me the EMS chief. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I had no leadership experience. Yeah. You know, I had hardly any experience as a paramedic. Yeah. Um, at work, you know, I, I had nine years on the job before I got promoted, which in the grand scheme of things isn't all that much, really. Mm -hmm. um, nine years. Nine years. You you would say that is not much. Yeah, compared to some people. Okay. But I also have a severe case of imposter syndrome. Oh, same. You know, oh, um, every everybody, everybody tells me it's plenty of time. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I know people who wait. 10, 15, 20 years, you sure. know, and is sure. that necessary? Probably not. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't have a lot of leadership experience. I had acted lieutenant when my captain was off, sure. um, you know, stuff like that. But most of what I learned about being a leader came from watching others, talking to others. Emulating other people that yeah, you wanted to be I like. say, you know, sure. Captain so-and-so, Lieutenant so-and-so, they're really good. I really like them. You know, they, they, they really have their shit together. I want to be like that when I grow up, mm -hmm. you know. Um, that's why I wonder, you know, if there's not room for some sort of a, a leadership, which my, my work is currently doing, a leadership academy. Um but, you know, even in, in the college world, you know, maybe part of the paramedic program should be, hey, here's what comes next. Here's how you work effectively as a leader. And even though you may not be an officer or manager or whatever for a few years, here's the basics of it. Because this is going to apply when you're on a call because, you know, one thing you learn very quickly in EMS, you might be a paramedic with a year or two or EMT with a year or two of experience and you get to a call and it's, you know, something crazy going on and you're essentially in charge. You're it. You yeah. know? You, you may, know? Yeah. So uh, that's another point that they talk about the book. Uh, not only leading down the chain of command, but leading up the chain of command. Yeah. Right. Um, talk talk to me about that. Yeah. So like, uh, and I, I mean, I hate to do this again, but uh, they, they, they put it so well here. Um, so I want to, I want to just pull up, uh, 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 so, so I'm going to read again. Uh, if your boss isn't making a decision in a timely manner or providing necessary support for you and your team, don't blame the boss. First, blame yourself. Examine what you can do to better convey the critical information for decisions to be made uh, and support allocated. Um, leading up the chain of command requires tactful engagement with the immediate boss um, to obtain the decisions and support necessary to enable your team to accomplish its mission and ultimately win. Um, and I'm going to skip down here. Uh, leading up the chain, uh, chain takes much more savvy and skill than leading down the chain, right? Because you don't have the authority of the, 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 the pit, the, the bugle or whatever. Leading up, the leader cannot fall back on his or her positional authority. Instead, the subordinate leader must use influence, experience, knowledge, communication, and maintain the highest professionalism. Um, and then down here... Um, while pushing to make your superior understand that you, what you need, you must also realize that your boss must allocate limited assets and make decisions with the bigger picture in mind. You and your team may not represent the priority effort at that particular time, or perhaps the senior leadership has cho chosen a different direction. Have the humility to understand and accept this. Uh, yeah, that, I guess the last part didn't really, I mean, it obviously counts, but you know, I think it's important. Humility yeah. is important yeah. because 
Nobody likes a leader who is full of themselves or anybody who's full of themselves or cocky or arrogant or, um, you know, those are not qualities of people that I want to work with or for, mm -hmm. you know, um, it's, it's very difficult to have somebody like that within your sphere, um, whether they're above you, below you, lateral to you. Um, it makes them difficult to work with. Now you can, I don't know if you've ever read the book, the 48 laws of power. Mm -mm. Um, that's a lot of laws. It's, it, it is a lot of laws. It's like 500 pages. Yeah. Oh, um, it's uh, it's one of the books that people talk about a lot when you talk about leadership mm -hmm. as being like a must read. I'll be honest with you. I read it. Um, it was really like 500 pages of how to manipulate somebody, mm. which isn't really my style. Sure. Um, but it, it does – it, it kind of reminds me of that arrogant leader because when you have somebody like this – and I hope nobody listening takes this the wrong way because it's it's not how I am. Um, but if you do have somebody who's arrogant, you can kind of play to that mm -hmm. and like be like, yeah, you're so great, blah, blah, sure, blah, blah. Sure, and sure. then, you know, um, I guess maybe they like you a little better. So what I want to do is – that's a great segue because I have one battery bar left on this recorder. So I okay. replace the battery. So let's finish this episode out. Um, and then we'll start the next episode with that question. Uh, well, well, that topic, manipulation. Okay. All right. Um, so here, Ken, you can finish this out. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to Alert Medic One. It's been a great discussion. We hope to see you soon. Please check us out, Facebook, Twitter. Oh, I'm working um, on the website, so that's down. Working on the website, that's down. Uh, but check us out online. Uh, lots of great content coming. And we hope to see you soon on Alert Medic One. You've been listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner.